Hello and welcome to Vocal, a show by Sounder where we chat with thriving podcasters to uncover stories and actionable insights that can help other creators sharpen their craft. If you're interested in going behind the scenes of a podcaster's journey, discovering growth tactics that actually worked for the pros, and learning from a diverse range of experts in many fields, you're in the right place. I'm Jackie O, your host for this episode. Today we're being joined by Dr. Stephen Bradley of the Black Doctors Podcast. Dr. Bradley is a board-certified anesthesiologist and medical ethicist in the Navy. He is also an assistant professor of anesthesiology, sharing his knowledge through educating medical students and residents. He hosts the Black Doctors podcast, where he guides inspiring and insightful conversations with practitioners of color across many career paths in health. Neurosurgeons, dentists, veterinarians, plastic surgeons, the full range. And on top of all of that, he's a musician and keeping up with social trends, sharing video recordings on TikTok and other platforms. Simply wild how much Dr. Bradley gets done, and I'm excited to learn from him. So kicking off, and and we've kind of talked about how this is my first interview and like my first seat at the mic, but if we can throw it back, what was it like your first time at the mic? My first time at the microphone, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I looked up a lot of YouTube videos and blogs, and I'd read so many things about how to launch a podcast. And, you know, I got in front of the mic and just started talking. I, I didn't really know, you know, how far away or how close I should be to the microphone. And my first episode was solo. I just kind of told my story and why I was starting the podcast. And so it was easy to kind of share my story, but I also don't like uh, being a center of attention. It's been much easier to sit across from somebody and uh, interview guests. So it's kind of uh, me hiding behind the folks I have on the show, but it was uh, it was nerve wracking. Um, I was fortunate to be able to edit it myself and make sure that it sounded as best as I could. You, I mean, since then you've gone a really long way. Um, getting to fifty thousand downloads is no easy feat. So if you were looking back, and you did it in in two years, three years. Uh, yeah. Um, um. We're coming up on our second year in June. Yeah. So I mean, it's you know very high performing to get there that fast. If you were zooming in on kind of three things or three factors that were key in getting you from zero to 50K in downloads, what would you say that they were? Yes. Um, And honestly, we're actually uh, just over 75,000 because I started with a different host. Um, So I always try to lump those numbers in. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. And the, the growth has been incredible. It's been overwhelming and honestly surprising. I remember that first episode, I released it, and in that first like week or two weeks, fifty people listened to the episode. I'm like, who who are these fifty people that found this podcast? And you know, I, I shared it on social media, but I was not expecting that robust of a response. Um, I am fortunate to have a really good network. Uh, the podcast is called the Black Doctors Podcast. It's about diversity in healthcare. So within that space, uh, it's a very small community of uh, black physicians, uh, dentists, healthcare practitioners. And I think within that community, I was able to gather support from other fellow clinicians that I had on the show. Um, I learned a lot preparing for the podcast about how you know, maybe the folks with the biggest social media followings may not be 
the, the guests that have the, the most receptive um, audience for their episode. And it's definitely been true. I've had some surprises in it and it goes to show that social media doesn't tell the whole story. There's some folks out there that, you know, off of the internet have a fantastic community and sharing those stories, um, you know, it, it brings that community into the podcasting space. Um, so the, you know, m- first of all, the credit goes to the incredible guests that I've been able to highlight and their incredible stories. Um, second, I would, you know, say it's the social media aspect. I learned using different uh, apps how to make marketing graphics uh, that were consistent. You know, you can look at the beginning of the podcast and see how they've changed over time and, and hopefully gotten better over time and trying to post consistently on social media so that people can see what the podcast is up to. And uh, the, the third thing that's happened really is through Sounder, um, the marketing tools that Sounder provides. I was very impressed when I switched over to the, to the program, not to sound like a commercial, but um, the initial host I was with didn't have a lot of uh, tools that I could use. Sounder has a nice kind of all-in-one feature where I can make graphics and make videos and I can add hashtags um, to help with uh, syndication and and uh, search engine optimization for the podcast. So I think those three things have have definitely been uh, helpful. And you do this all outside of your medicine practice, being on an ethics committee, um, performing your music, <laughs> recording it. What? Is there a, a routine, a mindset, a discipline approach? How do you, how do you stay motivated? How do you juggle all of the different things that you do? I wish I could come here and say that I am super disciplined and have my life together and ducks in a row. But honestly, like I kind of wing things a lot. I have priorities. Um, my uh, wife, um, you know, we have to set boundaries and make sure I'm able to. Um, be where I need to be. Uh, when it comes to work, fortunately, I'm done with residency training and, you know, I, I work 40, 50 hours a week, which leaves a fair amount of time for outside things. The things that I have to get done every Monday, I release an episode. So oftentimes it's Sunday night that I am finishing up editing. You know, I might start editing at 8 p.m. on a Sunday night and try and get up by midnight, but I've been able to become more efficient with the editing process. And, you know, it takes me maybe an hour, hour, and 15 minutes to edit a podcast episode. Um, in between all that is kind of whenever I feel creative, I have a couple instruments. It's kind of always been my dream to be able to be inspired and just pick up whatever instrument I feel like playing and start to create or try to, you know, do a cover of a song that I like. So it's kind of um, this evolving thread that you know just kind of what I feel like doing within reason and as long as I hit all the metrics and and hit all the deadlines that that I've imposed everything just kind of happens organically it sounds like you're really in the flow now and and I've seen people comment that on our feeds as well that that's how they can be in that um consistent output because it feels good to them but I know that you also talked a lot about imposter syndrome on separate episodes. It was something that you followed up on. And in my experience, anxiety can be a huge 
block to to energy and progress. So how do you feel that you overcame that so that you can now lean in towards the inspiration instead of being bogged down by like any self-talk? Yeah, so that anxiety and that imposter syndrome that I talked about, it's so prevalent in the medical field. It's prevalent, you know, anytime you're getting in front of a lot of people, which is exactly what podcasting is. In the beginning, I was super nervous and worried about how I would be perceived and how does the podcast sound. Um, around that time, I, you know, I found some online course that was going to teach me how to be like super rich, but that didn't work out. Uh, but one of the slogans from the course was, and I think it came from someone's book, done is better than perfect. And that a lot of times we get so worked up on putting out something that is absolutely perfect and flawless when in actuality, you just need to start creating, whether it's on social media, whether it's podcasting, you know, do a little research and just, you know, crank a project out. And over time, um, I found it inspiring. I can go back and look at some of my initial episodes and see that um, the sound has improved, the quality has improved. So that continues to kind of motivate me on uh, for the for the future. Um, I also initially was concerned with building a following. Um, I thought that was the ultimate, um, you know, marker of success. And over time, I saw that change as well, that um, I wasn't necessarily getting whatever numbers, nebulous numbers that I thought I should be getting and trying to figure out where I fell with regards to the podcast ranking boards. But what really stuck out was um, the occasional uh, comments that I would receive and feedback from medical students and pre-medical students that said they really appreciated the podcast and they learned different things from different episodes. Some episodes that I thought would be huge, maybe not so much. And then some other episodes, like I just could never predict which episode and what piece of content would speak to which listener. So about halfway through, I kind of stopped caring, if you will. And I just figured, you know, I'm going to put this out there and the right people will see it. The right people will hear it. And eventually that transitioned over to my social media where, you know, I was working on this nicely curated feed and kind of the influencer light, if you will. And then I just stopped caring and, and you'll see a bunch of random music videos of me um, just practicing mostly. Because again, I can go back a year ago and look at the music that I created and the covers that I did and recorded, and I can see how I've progressed as a musician as well. So I'm, it's almost more for me than, than for the people that are following. Absolutely. You were pursuing music and working in construction way <laughs> back, you know, before this, before this journey started. And you had talked about how there was a moment when you were working with the physician that made you realize that maybe it was time to, to change on your journey, what you were working towards. And how did that happen for podcasting? Um, in terms of getting into podcasting and making that first step? Yeah, like what was the moment or the event or the realization that it was time to do this this whole new direction, right? Because you were doing music yeah. and, and medicine. So that comes down to another physician podcaster, black physician podcaster, Dr. Nee Darko. And he's the host of the Docs Outside the Box podcast. And it's been around for several years, several years before I started podcasting. And he was posting on social media and he posted one day why every physician should have a podcast. 
And I said, well, that's a ridiculous statement to make. That's pretty strange. Uh, but I guess that uh, worked because I went in and scrolled through his post and kind of learned about podcasts. And he talked about building a platform for yourself and having control over your your audience and the message that you want to see re, that you want to send out. Um, I also was really thinking about ways that I could impact the healthcare community at, at large and increase the diversity that we see around us. And I was weighing the difference between more posts on social media and other uh, mediums. And I thought that podcasting would accomplish all those things. And it provides something with a staying power that years down the road, people can look up an episode about a neurosurgeon and figure out, you know, what it takes for, for her to get there. And that's the two things that kind of led me into podcasting or, or got me to think about it at least. And I spent the next couple of months really planning. Like I, I said before, I'm not much of a planner except, at, you know, every now and then. So I was able to sit down and kind of develop a plan for how I wanted to build this and launch this. And uh, fortunately it, it worked out. This is a bit of a, a weird one. Um, but I really do enjoy seeing how your how your journey has has led you to where you're at. Has there ever been a moment, you know, over all these years that you felt like you were destined for a certain path or that in that moment you were like, I was really meant to through all that stuff be here and to get to this place and to do what I'm doing. Yeah. So as an anesthesiologist, um, that happens pretty frequently. Um, you know, in medicine, I think people get in there and think they're going to save lives every day, depending on your specialty. If you're maybe an emergency medicine physician or a trauma surgeon, you can have that experience where you're actually saving a life every day. For me, uh, the hospital I work at and the acuity that I see, it still happens. Um, thankfully, it's not every day that I'm faced with intense life and death situations. But on a fairly regular basis, maybe once, maybe twice a month, I am able to provide care to a patient that is, you know, having the worst day of their lives, literally. And I'm able to um, incorporate things that I learned along the way from my ethics background and my culturally competent care background that I've been able to kind of groom along the way and able to meet this patient and provide comfort physically, mentally, emotionally, and just be there and realize later on that, you know, I may have in some way changed the trajectory of, of their life. That's huge. Um, moving into your role as a medical ethicist, <laughs> And my understanding of that is you are on a committee that helps physicians navigate complicated or difficult cases with their patients and decide on what is morally best and also in the best interest of the patient. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. We actually just had a meeting this morning um, where some other physicians had some very challenging questions. I got into medical ethics, so it's not a formal subspecialty of medicine. I was completing my training for anesthesiology and at the University of Chicago, they have the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. And basically you have a lot of physicians, some philosophers, um, some lawyers, and some other folks that in addition to their regular day-to-day -day practice have decided to somewhat subspecialize or focus on medical ethics. And how do clinicians make these very challenging decisions and what does the evidence show is, is essentially kind of a think tank, if you will, 
where we dedicate time to to research this and see what's been done in the past and what's cutting edge and what we should be doing. So I was able to spend a year, my last year of fellowship, with the McLean Center doing an ethics fellowship. And um, we would cover the ethics service. And for this large university hospital, anytime there was a complex medical case, they would call whoever was on the pager service. And a lot of that is setting up family meetings and making sure all the appropriate parties are involved. Make sure we look at things from the perspective of the different physicians involved, from the patient's perspective, from the state law or hospital policy perspective, and come to the best uh, uh, outcome that we possibly can. And after finishing that program, I went on to practice as an attending physician, and most hospitals have a an ethics committee. And that committee is there for that same reason, to help clinicians make uh, very complicated decisions. And even outside of the committee work, it's helpful to work with my, my coworkers, and every now and then some questions will come up, like uh, questions involving informed consent, which is you know making sure patients know what they're signing up for with their surgeries, or maybe what's the right thing to do um, for this patient that cannot provide consent, or dealing with minors that are too young to provide consent, and, and who is the right person to make that decision for them. End-of-life care is another big thing we talk about. Um, because, you know, especially with the, the pandemic, some people are, are incredibly sick for extremely long periods of time. And it's important to consider that patient's goals and wishes and try to, to see what they would want in the situation where they're unable to speak or advocate for themselves. Do you feel like having an ethics committee is, is effective? Like, do you see it do you see it working in hospitals? Just because, you know, from an outsider's point of view, there's a lot of mistrust a lot of the time in hospitals as an institution. And so do you feel like there's still a gap or the issue is somewhere else? There's only so much the ethics committee can do. Yeah, there's still a gap when it comes to healthcare and mistrust of healthcare professionals. Depending on everybody's experience with the healthcare system, it's we all have very different experiences and the ethics committee ideally comes into a situation where maybe there's a surgeon and a patient and the patient's family where they're at odds with each other. And the ethics committee attempts to come in as a neutral third party. Um, if the physician was on the ethics committee, they would recuse themselves of, of this encounter. But the ethics committee comes in as a third party to try to mitigate and look at things as objectively as possible. Granted, they are still part of that hospital system. But the, the role of that committee is to just provide a different point of view and perspective. From a bird's eye view, what do you feel are the biggest issues facing ethics and medicine in America? Um, as the last couple of years have shown, there's a lot of misinformation and it's difficult to know who is or is not a reliable source as a physician or those of us that, that have studied medicine for a while. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe perhaps we're indoctrinated, but... We're used to reading research, uh, primary research on topics. We have courses on that throughout medical school and determining you know, what is the best um, method of practice. I've realized over the last couple of years that presenting that research to the general public, a lot of it can be lost in translation. A lot of it can be misconstrued or distorted. And other members of the general public, why would they know any any different or how should they know who they should or shouldn't listen to 
So misinformation is is huge, and the impetus is on us as clinicians to be able to uh, break down this very complex information in a way that our patients can understand it. A lot of this happens in that physician-patient relationship, where ideally you have a primary care physician that you trust, that you can go to with these concerns and have those conversations. The second thing that's really huge is healthcare disparities. They've been with us from the beginning of the establishment of healthcare in the United States. Looking back at the history, there's so much bad that was done uh, when you brought over uh, enslaved uh, Africans, they and they were used as uh, props and, and used to study and build our medical practice, um, experimented on along the way, and it's developed this culture of mistrust in healthcare. And it's actually quite reasonable if an organization has harmed you or your family members in the past, why would you trust it today? So that history, um, you know, we fortunately come a long way. There's still a long way to go, but healthcare disparities are, are still very prevalent as we saw with the, the pandemic, with the different rates of death and disease in different communities. Over the last probably 50 years or so, as we've started to diversify the healthcare workforce, um, among many other aspects, as we diversify the healthcare workforce, we now have physicians that are concerned and can treat and look at disparities that occur in populations from which they, they originated from. So we can now look at and, and see that African Americans, uh, Hispanic, uh, patients have worse healthcare outcomes. We can ask those questions. Well, why? Before, perhaps um, people didn't care as much because of the demographic of the physician workforce. But as we diversify, we can now start to ask those questions. We can start to advocate to get research money and funding to look at these healthcare disparities and look at different issues that are, are leading to these disparate outcomes. One of the big focuses now is looking at the social determinants of health. Whereas before we might say, okay, well, black people have worse health care because they eat poorly or um, it, it's an intrinsic factor of their genetics or something that, that's inherently wrong with them. And now we can look at it and say the social determinants of health is the overall structure and framework in which we live as a community. It brings into it components of um, housing security, redlining the way um, housing situ situated in our major cities that exposes uh, young minority children to worse uh, air quality as they're growing up in these inner cities or the job insecurities and food insecurities that they have because they don't have access to healthy food. Therefore, there's higher incidences of diabetes and high blood pressure. Um, the education system and their ability to navigate that to join the, the healthcare workforce even and lead to you know more balancing in these healthcare outcomes. So looking at the bigger picture of what's going on has enabled us to to hopefully start to make some progress. I think this year there was a 10% increase in the number of uh, black students and Hispanic students admitted to medical school. So again, that that's some reassuring numbers, uh, but there's still a long way to go. The the third thing I think in regards to the ethics and situation of, of healthcare in the country is just, I think we're losing that sense of community and that we're so fragmented uh, based upon ethnic or racial lines or politics. And it's 
hard when we're all speaking different languages and, um, you know, languages in terms of politics or social ideologies, and we're unable to kind of look past that and see the humanity in each other and then just, just love each other and um, take care of our neighbors. Absolutely. You put a very hopeful, comforting light on on that type of of question and, and the state of things. So I appreciate that a lot. You're able to, through the podcast and through your work, do a lot for these causes in the hospital and in the healthcare space. In terms of political actions or organizations that need to exist, do you see, you know, a positive trajectory there or the right opportunities arising there? Is it is it something that really just has to happen on a local level? How do you see the work being done outside of healthcare, but adjacent to, right? These are interconnected systems. Yeah, that that's a difficult thing to, to see depending on where you're at. So I'm, I'm a bit transient. I've been practicing in Virginia for one on four years now. I'm going to move back to Chicago shortly. So I haven't gotten too involved in local politics, but I have had my eyes opened to that intersection between healthcare, health disparities, health outcomes, and uh, state and local government. There's so many things that are connected. And when you get into the politics of the matter, who you elect and who's at this local level has a significant impact on the state of healthcare in their districts and in their communities. And in addition to that is the national level where you're setting national healthcare policies. And that's not been my area of expertise. Thankfully, there's so many um, excellent physicians. Um, my, my colleague, Nate Jones, he's very involved in public policy and the Dr. Italo Brown. There's physicians that, you know, maybe not aren't focused on ethics as, as I am, but they are focused on public health, um, masters of public health degrees, and they're able to look at local politics, look at national politics, and work in that regard to affect change. I wish I knew more about people, like, because I work in marketing. I'm so outside of it, and so I'm I'm that person who who's looking at it from the outside in, not always sure um, who to who to trust and and what steps to take. My, I originally started out as a social worker many years ago, and my experience was so rough that I ended up leaving the healthcare industry. If anything, it was almost the opposite from from how your journey took you. But and and I, and I think that's I think that's the the beauty of podcasting is that you get to sit across from people that are in wildly different fields, and even myself, you know, I'm talking to mostly healthcare workers, but each specialty of medicine has a different perspective and has different healthcare disparities and different uh, medical problems that they treat. So it's just one of the benefits and, and super cool things about podcasting. For people going to get help for their health is and they have concerns, is there any advice you would give them in terms of how to feel, how to prepare for when they meet with a doctor or how to to know um, or assess the trustworthiness, the trustworthiness of someone? Do you... Should we go in trusting people? Should we go in with certain questions ready? How do we kind of rebuild that relationship as a two-way street patient doctor? Yeah, I think one of the first things that everybody can do, and, and you know, this is for those privileged enough to have healthcare insurance. Um, unfortunately, 
there is a, a large gap in people being underinsured or not having insurance. But assuming you're able to have a primary care physician, you should uh, see them for your yearly physical. That will en- enable you to build a trusting relationship with one person that you're going to see at, a, at scheduled intervals. When you go to see your physician, you know, take notes the last couple of days or maybe the last week or two before you see them for a regular scheduled visit. So you have those questions immediately available. Um, you know, so many times you get, even myself, I show up to the doctor and I feel perfectly fine and there's nothing to talk about because everything's fine. So having those questions ready to go is very helpful when sitting down with your physician. In terms of looking for a uh, competent physician who's qualified and trained, you know, so we go through a lot of training. We complete medical school or after college, we which, in which we have to get specific prerequisite classes, we would take an exam, um, the medical college admissions test, ideally get into medical school. That's four years of standardized training. During medical school, we take two board exams, which are scaled against every medical student in the country. After that, we're applying to residency programs and the residency match process. You're kind of like interviewing for multiple jobs at the same time. And that again is another process where you're having your whole uh, resume, if you will, looked at your exam records, your grades from school looked at by very selective programs. After that, you know, during residency, you're supervised for the entire time. The shortest residencies are three years, like your pediatrics or pediatricians or internal medicine physicians. Your neurosurgeons will, will train for seven years. So somewhere between three and seven years of education or training through residency where you're supervised by attending physicians the whole time. During residency, you take another board exam. And once you're done with residency, you'll take a, a board exam specific to that specialty that you trained in. So for me, I completed anesthesiology residency. I took a written exam two months later. And about seven months later, I took an oral board exam um, in person. I think it was about four hours of just answering questions to two people. So that is the board certification process. So you can easily look up um, your physician and see if they're board certified. Uh, typically coming out of residency, we have several years, you know, up to about three to five years of board, uh, eligibility. So if you have somebody practicing that's been out, you know, longer than maybe five years or so, and they're not board certified, that can be a question that you ask. Um, otherwise you can easily kind of look and see who is and is not board certified. Um, and just those regular visits will help kind of gain the, the trust and build that relationship between the two of you. So looking for someone board certified is a good way to help ensure that the care you're going to get is. Absolutely. Unfortunately, what happens a lot is in the absence of that primary care physician, people will seek care at emergency departments when things are really bad or urgent care clinics. And those are fine, but you lose that continuity. Every time you go into the emergency department, there's probably a different physician working, different staff. And the electronic health records are going to be fragmented as well. If you see the same physician over and over again, they're going to have all your medical records in one location. It's going to make it easier to coordinate your healthcare. Uh, but unfortunately, what we do see in, in healthcare these days is the emergency, uh, emergency department being used kind of as that primary care office, which 
is not the way it's it's supposed to work. Because that long-term relationship is how people can really understand the treatment that you're going to need. Exactly. Um, do you have a favorite failure that later on set you up for success? It was something that you thought was going to be a wrong turn and you're like, no, that was a, a needed shift. Oh, that's a good question. Expected failure. Um, He's like, I've always been winning. Oh, <laughs> uh, gosh. I think at first, uh, when I transitioned into residency, and I talked about this in, I think, my first podcast episode, um, there was definitely some bumps in the road. You go from a medical student uh, where you're more student than um, uh, working in the hospital. You're, you're taking tests, you're studying, but you're also kind of seeing patients, but you don't have as much responsibility. And when you transition from medical school to residency, that first year, I mean, people talk about intern year and and you don't go to the hospital in July, which uh, is, is a bit uh, unfair because honestly, in, in July, even as a brand new resident, you have senior residents as well as an attending physician who are um, providing oversight and evaluating you the entire time. But all of a sudden, you have a lot of responsibility. I had worked other jobs before. Some people are coming straight from undergrad to medical school to residency, and this may be their first job. So it's a very, very steep learning curve. Uh, I thought I was ready. I'd passed the board exams and I got there and there was definitely some areas that I needed to to step up and, you know, just increase the amount of time and, and work that I was putting into it. Because again, there's patients that are now depending on me to provide care and to keep them safe. What is, what's coming down the line for Steven when you now that you you have your podcast growing and you talk about how every year you have more experience and more sort of establishment in your field. And I know you said that you're not huge on planning, <laughs> but do you have any type of point on the horizon? I am working on it. So right now, kind of the biggest things are bringing on more host. Uh, it, it was a solo show with me doing the editing, me doing the interviewing. My wife helped out with some of the uh, intro music and, and stuff that I, I recorded as well. I've been able to bring on a couple additional hosts. One uh, host, Dr. Stewart, he's a general surgery resident physician. So he's able to kind of relate to physicians that are still in training and have that perspective, add that to the show. And I've worked on a couple other people reached out to kind of help diversify the perspectives that are portrayed. So looking, looking for a woman physician as well to be a host to get that perspective because it's so crucial to hear what other women go through in the field as much as, you know, I've had a hard time that, you know, things are, you know, always disproportionately worse with regards to discrimination and, and other things that they encounter. So I really want to focus on broadening the perspectives that are being portrayed. Um, I also uh, want to focus more on um, organizing the structure of the show and maybe having some themes to different months and continue to improve the quality of the show over time. The other thing I'm working on is, you know, trying to coordinate how best to do some giveaways because medical students, pre-medical students 
are are broke and struggling for the most part. And I just want to be able to give back to people that are at such a critical time. Thank you. Um, okay. And so just to wrap up, you know, is it's a little plug time. Is there any like episodes or anything that you have coming up that, that you would want to point listeners to anything that you want to shout out, or if you want people to get in contact with you, a part of these um, podcasts is also so that if other sounder creators, your podcast is very specific, but maybe you being a guest on their show, you know, if anything you want to point to in terms of if you want to be reached out to or any projects that you, that you want to shout out. Yeah. Stay tuned for hopefully big things coming. Uh, uh, my buddy Nate is supposed to be joining me on the podcast and he's bringing this piece of uh, organization and structure, which should be good because I don't have any of that. So stay tuned for some other voices, other perspectives, hopefully reaching out to present more of the LGBTQIA perspective in healthcare. Also, you know, woman's perspective being a physician. Um, a couple of my buddies are starting an, a virtual anesthesiology journal club where we just get people together, residents from across the country on Zoom and review research articles. We're trying to build a sense of community for um, minority, mostly minority residents because, you know, we're, we're so few and far between in these training programs that I, I always say in the show, representation matters. I've been able to sit with a couple of attending physicians and learn from us and grow together is our goal. And along the way, we're actually kind of publishing and putting out the things that we're doing to create this space and to create this journal club with the hopes that, you know, anybody can build something similar regardless of specialty or even regardless of your field, um, that you can build these groups and, and these communities. Dr. Stephen Bradley, everyone, the man making the world a better place and giving, I'll leave it there, but in giving this like somewhat nihilistic person a lot more hope. Thank you for tuning in. That was Dr. Stephen Bradley, host of the Black Doctors podcast. If you would like to reach out to Dr. Bradley for questions or collaboration, you can find him at stephenbradleymd.com. That's S-T-E-B-E-N-B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-M-D.com. If you're a podcaster with Sounder who would like to be featured in this series, you can email me at Jackie at Sounder.fm. That's J-A-C-Q-U-I at Sounder.fm. Till next time. <laughs>